As hunters, we all obviously love Halloween, but we also love those disturbing stories that inspire the best designs. We're counting down to Halloween today with a reading of original dark poetry by Scott Swenson. Many of the stories that you will hear today are from haunts that Scott has written. From the Haunted Attraction Network, I'm Philip, and this is our 61-day Hauntathon counting down to Halloween. It's the week of Halloween, which means we are airing multiple episodes every day until Halloween. The best way you can support us this Halloween season is, of course, by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. And to follow along to our Hauntathon, sign up for our weekly newsletter at hauntedattractionnetwork.com. And so wherever you're listening to this, I hope you take some time to soak it up. Soak up the feeling of Halloween and stay scary. Enjoy the show. What I'm here to do tonight is to take some of those ideas that you've heard, the ideas about story and the impact and the importance of story, and put them into practice. I am not only a haunt designer and an event designer, but I'm I'm also an author. And I'm really, really proud of my most recent book, which is called Awake in the Dark. And I'm going to be doing some readings from Awake in the Dark. I'm going to be doing a couple from some of my other books. But I just thought it would be fun to gather together and enjoy the spoken word. I do have to give the preface and the warning that these pieces do contain adult language and adult situations. So since I have done my official theme park warning, let's dive in. Master and Monster. The master and the monster live in the same house. They share the same dreams, draw passion from the same heart. When one feels in control, the other steps back in temporary retreat. Demons live in shadows, while heroes hide in light. But shade doesn't exist without the sun. Night and day endlessly chase each other around the earth. Gray is the only true compromise between black and white. Know who is on your own personal flip side. Understand the troll who lives under the bridge. Breathe in the sulfur rising from the forbidden fire. Both halves balance the soul. I quite often start my readings with this piece. It is actually the first piece in the book, Awake in the Dark. And I like to start with that because it gives us permission to sort of embrace the dark side. Now, I realize with this crowd, that's not a difficult thing. But I think we have to recognize that sometimes it's okay to discover the demons that lie within ourselves. And this book in particular is probably one of the most honest and raw expressions of some of my darker sides. And the thing I like about writing horror and science fiction and that sort of thing is what you write can often be interpreted in different ways, depending on what your personal viewpoint is. For example, The blind children. Following the fallacy that wears the pelt of truth, the blind children marched forward, stepping together without rhythm, finding their way by sniffing the ass of the one in front of them. Following the funk of the feces in the lead, the blind children moved with purpose, stepping together without a point of view, finding bits and pieces of substance that had been discarded by those ahead. Following the squeaks and farts of the unseen minority, the blind children stumbled and fell, stepping over the bodies of those who had already perished, finding that the darkness provided no sustainable support. 
only hopelessness. So for those of you who are still with me, um, this next piece is actually not from this book. And it's actually a little bit longer, so I, I did a couple short pieces just to kind of get warmed up, make sure everything was going. Um, it's not from Awake in the Dark. This next piece is actually from my first book, which is called Dreaming in Shades of Fear. Uh, this was written about five years ago. And the reason I'm doing uh, this piece is this book, when it first came out, I, I think maybe 18 people have read it total, to be honest. Um, it's, it's had very limited, uh, limited exposure. But the people who read it loved this particular piece. And my favorite description was, they said, this piece sounds like Dr. Seuss and Edgar Allan Poe had an illegitimate love child who became an author. Which is a really weird way of describing something, but I, I quite liked it. It's called Tiny Hat. Snubbing out the cigarette, reaching for the white, putting on the makeup for yet another night. Covering the scars and stubble, hiding all his past. Black around his bloodshot eyes, bright red nose is last. Faded striped tuxedo coat, tattered pants as well. If the kids don't get too close, they might not catch the smell. The matted wig and tiny hat top off the classic look. But no one's seen the hidden stash of all the things he took. His painted smile blurs the line, but his secret fetish is clear. From each little town or overnight stop, he takes a souvenir. After the show, he chooses his mark. He gives them a red balloon. They never think for a moment that he will see them soon. After a quick wipe with a rarely washed rag, he blends in with the crowd, lights a smoke, takes a drag. Then he spots the red balloon, the only one he gives, then follows it through the streets to where his target lives. He waits outside until the time is right, until the house is dark. He picks the lock and slips inside, and then he feels the spark of energy, the rush he gets by adding to his collection. There is such precise randomness in the participant selection. He trusts his gut, knows just the one, the little girl or little boy, the one who loves the clowns the most, whose face lights up with joy. After pausing for a moment, he pulls out his dented flask, takes a shot and swallows hard, then back to his task. He stays in shadows, walking soft, hugging to the walls. He searches for his precious choice through the household halls. When he finds the intended child, his heart begins to race. He listens to the sleeping breath. This finishes his chase. He searches through the quiet room for the child's prized possession. He takes the doll or truck or bear to satisfy his obsession. Turning to the sleeping child, he then takes out his knife. He gently touches the soft, warm cheek. 
but he does not take a life. Instead, he cuts a tiny lock of the child's hair. He's learned to do this painlessly, so no one knows he's there. Then he quickly retreats to the circus yard, through his door and to his bunk. He hides the child's prize and hair. Oh, this action makes him drunk with power and with elation. But what could be his goal? You see, this twisted clown believes he now owns the child's soul. So, when the circus comes to town, and it could happen soon, keep your children close at hand and don't take the red balloon. Yeah, that's a piece called Tiny Hat. And um, I'm gonna do one more from my first book and I'll tell you the reason why. One of my favorite things to do is to take unusual, um, well, to take recognizable, uh, take recognizable monsters or horror stories and give my own sort of unusual twist to it. Um, so I've taken classic monsters throughout all of my books and found ways to make them different or new or twisted somehow. And this one was the, one of the first times I tried it. And I liked it so much that I actually revisit this same character in the, uh, in the newest book. But I wanted to give you the, the backstory of him by reading this piece from the first book. And it's sort of my take on one of the classic monster stories. It's a short story called Casey, 15. He just finished coloring the third toenail on his left foot totally black. The smell of permanent marker lingered in the humidity. As he capped the Sharpie and grabbed his flip-flops from the curb, Casey stood up and looked down the leg of his skinny black jeans to admire his work. Since his mother wouldn't let him wear or even buy nail polish, he felt he had to find other ways to express his alternative soul. Three weeks ago, he had even tried to color his entire head of, of bright copper hair, death black, with a thick poster marker. Halfway through, his mom came home from work and made him stop. The left half of his head is still a dingy, has, still has a dingy gray shadow. Being 15 sucked. Being 15 and a pale, red-headed kid living in Plant City sucked ass. Despite his strong desire to stand out, he had nothing different, nothing edgy, nothing at all about himself he liked. He wasn't even cool enough to consider suicide. Not that he wouldn't do it. He just never thought of it. His life wasn't all bad, but to him, personal misery was the only thing that made him interesting. He had no real friends and few passing acquaintances. He found some kind of power in being lonely. If he had any creativity or even drive, he could have been perhaps a tortured artist. But his skills were limited to the cosmetic application of office supplies. Not wanting to head back home, where he would be forced to spend the rest of the evening either watching mindless TV or arguing with his mother Janice, Casey's dad cut out about four years ago, he sat back down on the curb to continue working on his toes. He might have even started blackening his fingernails if he had thought he could keep them hidden. Janice would be pissed, which 
was probably the best reason to do it. He sat back down on the curb and popped out the marker, just as some little girl came charging around the corner on her bike. Casey recognized her as the kid who lived on the next block. Her name was Rennie or Renee. He didn't really care, so he started black scratching on his next toenail. Simultaneously, a thought and a sound shot into his head. The thought was, I wish that little bitch would wipe out. And the sound was the dry rustle of a bike tire sliding sideways on a patch of gravel. Both made Casey look up. He saw Rennie or Renee tilting at a rather obtuse angle just before her bicycle shot in one direction and her body shot in the other. The first thing to hit the blacktop was her exposed right shoulder, which left a scarlet brown trail as she grated several feet down the road. Her head hit next with a cracking sound, and then it bounced up, snapping her neck to the left, and then immediately back to the ground. When she stopped, her arms and legs were all pointing in different directions. She was face down in a slowly expanding pool of blood. Casey didn't move. In fact, he didn't breathe. Finally, the words, shit, she must have been hauling ass, whispered out of his lips. He slowly stood up and walked over to the pile of broken child. He was trembling, and although he would never admit it, beginning to cry. His heart was beating in his ears. He, he could barely hear himself saying, what should I do? 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 Over and over again. Casey slowly knelt down next to the girl. He never thought to run and get help. Sniffing back a tear, he rolled her onto her back. She was heavier than Casey had imagined. When he saw her face, a mixture of blood and embedded black chunks, everything else became blurry. His sharp focus moved from one spot to another. Her nose was scraped to the bone. One of her eyes was little more than a textured socket. Even worse, the other eye was open and staring into the sky. Casey had only seen one dead body before, and that was at his aunt's funeral. She had died of lung cancer. She actually looked better in her coffin than she had the last three times he had seen her alive. She even smelled better. This was very different. This was death. This was fresh death. This was unexpected fresh death. Transfixed, he leaned forward a little. He put his hand on her forehead to close her eye. He had seen this in a couple of cable shows, so he thought it was the thing to do. Suddenly, the last burst of air shot from the little girl's lungs like her soul was exploding from her body. The blast of warm air passing through the bloody remains of her torn lips propelled a spray of blood into Casey's face and open mouth. He jumped up. But instead of spitting, as one would expect, he swallowed. He stood in the middle of the street with his eyes closed. The metallic taste of human blood was disgusting at first. The warm silkiness of the liquid, however, was oddly appealing. Without opening his eyes, he methodically wiped his lips across, uh, wiped his finger across his face and licked it.
beyond thought, beyond reason, the sensation was intoxicating. Without consideration, Casey went back to his knees and started licking the child's wounds. At first, it looked as though he was trying to heal her with his tongue. As quickly as a logical thought entered his mind, an animalistic instinct pushed it away. His face and his hands were now covered in blood. The pool on the street had reached his knees and was soaking into his jeans. His white V-neck t-shirt was splattered. Casey couldn't stop. He was now moving with a greater sense of desperation. Anyone walking by would have heard the low, grunting sounds as he buried his face in the warm moisture that was once Rennie or Renee. Without realizing it, he then started punching and shaking the lifeless body to keep the blood flowing. She was no longer another human being. She was now a source of uncontrollable pleasure drug. Casey would have continued his blood feast had he not heard the squealing transmission of the Adamson station wagon turning the corner two blocks away. Reality struck him like cold lightning, flashing the thought, what the fuck am I doing? Followed by the rumbling concept of, what if I get caught? He shot to his feet and nearly slipped on the puddle as he started to run. He wasn't running home. He wasn't running away. He was an animal who had, without thinking, chosen flight over fight. He had to get away from the Adamson station wagon. He had to get away from the puddle of blood. He had to get away from the terrible stranger he had suddenly become. Casey ran. Four blocks later, he heard a car come to a screeching halt, followed by guttural screams. He was no longer the only one who knew that the little girl had massively wiped out on her bike, but there was still hope that he was the only one who knew what happened after. Another six blocks, he realized that he had lost both of his flip-flops. He started to feel the burning blacktop and stone bruises on the bottom of his feet. Three more blocks, and Casey started to slow down, not because he wanted to, but because his feet were starting to bleed. The sharp pain below his ribs hit soon after. Casey cut in behind a construction trailer that was still in the Markinson's front yard. They were away for the weekend while the sinkhole under their lanai was being filled. The work was done, but the trailer remained. He collapsed into a small ball between the trailer door and a large trash can. Covered in sweat, he began to rock violently while hugging his knees to his chest. Looking at his stained clothing, he could no longer differentiate the blood seeping from his ragged feet from that of the little girl. The sound of his head absently hitting the side of the trailer created the heartbeat for his deep cries. First, they were cries of pain, then cries of remorse. Eventually, though, they became cries of loss. Not of life, but of the seductive sensation of blood. He'd never felt so warm inside. He'd never felt so strong. This haphazard accident had forced him face first into a life-changing moment of self-discovery. He had a taste. He was addicted. From this day forward, Casey was different in the most abhorrent and subductive way. He was a bloodsucker. And he loved it. So that was my slightly different take on vampires. And yes, there is another Casey story coming up tonight. Um, 
It's a Casey story that is actually written in real time, and it's called Casey 20. So that was called Casey 15, and the next one you'll hear is Casey 20. But um, I, did, I, did I warn you it was going to get dark? I probably should have done that a little more clearly at the beginning. So I apologize. No, I guess I don't. Not really. Um, I'm embracing my dark side, and hopefully you're, you're joining along with me. So much of the stuff that I write comes from um, dreams or nightmares or uh, waking dreams. And because I focus so much on my dreams, there are times that I'm even able to lucid dream where I can control what's happening in my dream, or if I come out of it, I'm able to get back into it um, and kind of pick up where I left off. And dreams have always fascinated me because, especially when writing for horror or fiction in general, anything can happen and can happen without explanation and makes total sense in a dream. This next piece is once again from the new book, and it's called The Fabric of a Dream. Deep daggers of sleep threaten me, pushing me closer and closer to the darkness. My eyes fight the stinging midnight dust, but I succumb. Drifting in the oozing shadow, I hear music made up of children's cries, lovers' lies, a harmony of pain. Landing at the table with the soiled cloth and vase of rotting stems, I reach towards the last point of light it is snuffed out with a whisper hiss. Turning, I'm on the floor with my dead uncle playing blocks and building dreams. He laughs. Faces I've never seen, but no better than my own, stare in my window, blocking the light, hiding the night, holding tightly to my breath, hoping to rise above the warp and weft, the fabric of a dream. As you can probably tell, most of my poems, <coughs> excuse me, most of my poems are short and they are designed to sort of capture a feeling, not necessarily tell a story. This next piece tells a story. Um, and I have to say, uh, this piece was written, <coughs> excuse me, this piece was written quite a while ago, um, certainly before our current situation. Um, and I, I do have to warn you, it does have a little bit about uh, an epidemic or a disease, but it's a very different take. And once again, it's another one of my explorations of perhaps a classic monster theme in either a contemporary or, or different way. Before I start this, I'm sorry, I've been ignoring the chat. Let me see. Uh, See if I can open it there. There we go. And, uh, oh, thank you guys. I'm glad you liked uh, Tiny Hat. That was good. That was good. And yes, it is sort of like bedtime stories, isn't it? I'm glad you're appreciating it because I love doing it. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, <clears throat> so this next piece actually is the piece that brought about the, the title of the book, Awake in the Dark. And um, I've only read this piece in public once before, and that was at the Tampa Theater. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, there was so much political commentary in that piece and, and so much of a, an understanding of how human psychology works. And um, I had no idea. 
was not my intention. I just thought it was kind of an interesting story. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Sorry, let me take another sip. From my subtly branded coffee mug. Just saying. Okay. So the next piece is a short story called Debtor Box. Uh, Mr. McLeish, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think you should see this. I hadn't even finished my morning coffee when the construction supervisor on my new pool felt that I needed to see something. I was sure it was another delay. The permits took forever. The carbon tax submission, the water retention agreement, everything was taking longer than expected. I walked out the back door and joined the supervisor at the edge of the giant hole. We looked down to see a large blue fiberglass rectangle. It had been buried about six feet below the surface. It didn't take long to realize that this was the top of a box, like a storage container, about six feet wide and maybe 10 feet long. I wanted to get a closer look, so I asked the crew to help me down the ladder into the hole. Upon closer examination, I realized exactly what they had unearthed. It was a debtor box. Now, most people had forgotten about debtor boxes. They were the result of the last zombie outbreak. Uh, Sorry, I mean HEV flare-up. I don't want to be insensitive to any families who might have been affected. The inappropriately named human extinction virus reduced healthy, active people to mindless, violent savages in a matter of weeks. The virus simultaneously attacked the brain and the metabolism. At first, the victims would become sullen and withdrawn. They would stop eating and begin to rapidly lose weight. Their breathing and heart rate would slow down so much that people originally believed they were dead. But they weren't. The lack of nutrients caused the body to begin consuming itself. Dehydration combined with tissue disintegration changed their physical appearance drastically. By the third or fourth day after the infection, oxygen deprivation to the brain caused it to revert to its most primal state, that of basic survival. This caused a radical shift in behavior. The patients became violent. They would strike out at anything living and try to eat it. There was a short circuit between the body and the brain. (laughs) I think you can see why so many people commonly called the infected zombies. If it quacks like a duck. Another unusual thing about the HEV is that it wasn't fatal. The slowed metabolism actually extended their lives. In fact, it was difficult to kill them. Flesh wounds, even bullet holes or amputations, had no real effect. The virus caused the blood to nearly evaporate, so full-blown HEV victims couldn't bleed to death. The dehydrated tissue didn't become infected. The leathery body covering was significantly stronger than uninfected skin. The only way for debtors to die was either 75% total body mutilation or cremation. We couldn't even suffocate them as the virus mutated the lungs to accept any gas, even methane and other gases produced by their own decaying bodies. This was the first epidemic in human history that would not die out on its own. It wasn't killing people. 
It was making them nearly immortal. The first medical breakthrough came when doctors discovered that the virus was spread through saliva, usually from being bit by an infected human. This led to immediate and strict quarantine regulations. The first goal was to contain the outbreak. Large outdoor quarantine camps were set up. Some families were able to build in-home quarantine facilities for their infected loved ones. The construction costs, not to mention the home quarantine license, made this option only available to the extremely wealthy. Once the spread was under control, researchers were able to begin searching for a treatment. At first, the public was in outrage and demanded a cure. They held huge galas and star-studded fundraisers to say goodnight to HEV. Tons of money was raised, but research was slow. This was unlike anything the doctors had encountered. Much of the research took place in quarantine camps. This meant that security was ruthless. There were several redundant levels of lethal protection surrounding the camps. Slow progress, combined with a strictly enforced quarantine regulation, caused the general public to lose interest. Only family members of the infected uh, thought about, or even more rarely, saw HEV patients. It barely made the news when an archaeologist in Cairo stumbled across some of the same mutated DNA caused by the virus. She was carbon dating some long-forgotten mummy in the basement of the Cairo Museum of History when she made the connection. It wasn't until American and Scandinavian scientists simultaneously announced that this new DNA had opened the door to a vaccine. Debtors, sorry, HEV patients were back in the spotlight. The vaccine worked better than anticipated. One of the pioneering scientists was so confident that he made worldwide news when he walked unprotected into a quarantine camp. He was filmed surrounded by patients, all biting into his flesh. This was the first time most of us had seen footage from inside the camps in two or three years. The doctor emerged relatively unscathed, and more importantly, not infected. The images of these leathery, decomposing creatures attacking the soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning scientist turned the tides of public opinion once again. The poor victims of this horrible disease were instantly transformed into bloodthirsty monsters. Again, only the family members held on to the truth. The rest of the money raised early in the outbreak was spent to distribute the vaccine across the globe. It was mandatory that every citizen in every nation be vaccinated. This was the first and only time in human history when the earth was truly a global community. Unfortunately, the vaccine was not a cure. They tried injecting infected, infected patient after patient with varying strength, strengths of the drug, but it had little effect. Some researchers in Greenland claimed that although there was no physical change, some of the vaccinated debtors did display what appeared to be increased brain function, but this was never irrefutably documented. It was becoming evident that although the spread of HEV was 100% under control, those already infected with the virus would never be healthy again. There were many factions who wanted to finally put an end to this epidemic once and for all, most of them powerful politicians. After a massive media campaign which convinced the public that it was time to let the patients rest, 
a military resolution was passed to close and incinerate all of the remaining quarantine facilities. This included the residents. This was the only humane thing left to do. Those poor people, if you could still call them that, needed to be released from their misery. Families needed closure. There was also the ongoing cost of maintaining these facilities. So on January 2nd, the day we now celebrate as Release Day, all of the quarantine facilities were incinerated worldwide. Yes, there were a few protests and some tears, but it was all for the best. The only remaining debtors were those held in private care. These wealthy outliers prompted another military resolution to be passed, making it illegal to house any persons infected with the HEV. We didn't want another possible epidemic. Yes, the vaccine was still proving to be effective, but we couldn't risk it. Most families, sadly, turned their infected family members over to the authorities for release. But a few just couldn't imagine having their loved ones incinerated. So they decided to hide them. Most of these remaining outlaw debtors were confined to storage containers and buried deep underground on their family's private property. I suppose the hope was that that they may someday be a cure and then they could dig them up and live happily ever after. They didn't really need food or water or even air to survive. So they were essentially just put away. Personally, I don't know which was more humane, incineration or being buried in a box, awake in the dark for all eternity. Finding a debtor box, like that one, could have been yet another delay in construction of my new pool. The authorities would need to be called. I would have had to pay for proper removal and disposal of the damn thing. And there may have even been a trial to see if I'd buried it there in the first place. I really didn't need all that. I looked at the construction supervisor and firmly said, maybe we should move the pool over under those trees. This would be a great location for a large patio. Why don't you start pouring the concrete right here? Right now. And that's a little bit of a twisted take on a, uh, a zombie story. Um, sorry, that one's always rough for me because it, I, I, it scares me. It scares me. So let's move, let's move on to something that's even less scary. How's that? Uh, <laughs> move the pool. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we did. That's what we did. So here's another one. This is, uh, this is, I don't know. I don't know how to describe this. I don't know how to describe this piece. This is just kind of fun. Um, this is called the Nova Puzzle. It's a Nova Puzzle. Thank you, Cammie. I'm glad you enjoyed it or at least found it very scary. That's good. All right, this is called the Nova Puzzle. <laughs> I've always loved puzzles, not logic or mathematical puzzles, but puzzles where you find all the right pieces and put them in the right places. I especially love puzzles that, once everything is complete, serve a purpose or elevate the puzzler. That's why I started my Nova Puzzle. It has taken me two years and six months and 21 days to complete, but today I attach the final piece. I've traveled to 13 states and visited four countries outside of the United States to find all the pieces I need. 
Nova's pieces represent over 32 nationalities and four gender identifications. The challenge has always been preservation. Since it has taken me two years and six months and 21 days to complete, I have had to find ways to keep pieces fresh. Most of the time, I used a freezer, but if I had to carry a piece a long distance, I have also used salt preservation, dehydration, and formaldehyde. Salt and dehydration make the pieces very difficult to stitch to Nova because they became very leathery. Formaldehyde, however, has the opposite effect, and the stitches won't hold very well. I've had to replace six pieces throughout the process because they became damaged during transportation. I also have had to find ways to secretly harvest pieces without getting caught and to carry pieces unnoticed through airports and bus stations. It's really all part of the puzzle process. It's really all part of the game. Today, the game is over. Today, I will stitch the final piece in place. Then my Nova puzzle will be complete. I will be elevated as the first puzzler to, to unite people of many colors into one. I will, be, I will have created the perfect physical representation of unity once I stitch this last finger to Nova's right hand. And it only took me two years and six months and 21 days to complete. So sort of the ADD version of Frankenstein, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm very proud. One of the other things about this book that I'm really proud of is the, the, the fact that I illustrated the whole thing myself. And not only did I do the, the cover art, which is also the giant creepy face behind me, but I also did paintings for the interior as well. And for the Nova puzzle, this is, this is just like Miss Elizabeth in Romper Room. Um, for the Nova puzzle, that was the illustration, which was the final finger that went into place. All right. Um, so you met Casey earlier, and it's time to join up with Casey again. Um, let me check. Let me check my time here real quick. Am I going? Oh, yeah, I got to get going. Okay. So um, here we are with Casey one more time. Uh, Casey is nine. So it's been five years since we last met Casey in a book, and here he is at 20. This is a piece called Casey 20. And for those of you who joined us late, you missed the whole setup. He drinks blood. That's what you need to know. Casey 20. The moment the first ray of sunlight cut through the tiny slit in the curtain, Casey was awake. He never much cared for the sunlight. There were so many reasons. He was a pale ginger who burned uh, sitting next to a reading lamp. All of his fondest memories happened at night. And most importantly, he was a bloodsucker. Unlike the movies, he wasn't going to burst into flames. Daylight just made Casey anxious. Like, it revealed too much of who he was. He jumped to his feet, and before trying to find his underwear, he quietly pulled the curtain shut to, to maintain the darkness for a few more minutes. He didn't want to wake up last night's conquest, who was feedly curled on the edge of the hotel bed. He was pretty certain she was still drunk. She was snoring like a hibernated bear hibernating bear. She had been the perfect catch, a kinky 20-something from the suburbs who had come to the city to be, quote-unquote, bad. He saw her enter the bar around 11, but didn't even talk to her until well after one. 
Through trial and error, he had discovered the perfect timeline. Get them drunk, then adventurous, then desperate. Then he would swoop in with his awkwardly boyish good looks and his unwavering confidence and offer to do something just naughty enough. If I tie you to the bed, will you let me make you tremble until you scream? That almost always worked. After getting to the hotel room, which he was always able to make his victim pay for, he would lay them down on the bed and slowly begin to get undressed. His translucent nakedness nearly glowed in the dark. It was almost hypnotic. If they didn't pass out during the strip tease, he would encourage them to drink even more. He always carried a silver flask. And he would proceed to seduce them. Once unconscious, he was able to make a few small cuts and scrapes at different locations on their body. Wounds that might have happened by stumbling over a curb, or perhaps even during the act of lovemaking. Then, Casey would accomplish his real goal for the evening. He would feed, sucking on the small lacerations until they began to heal. When he had consumed his fill, he would sleep. He had refined this choreographed flirtation so that it would work on anyone, men or women, young or old. For Casey, sex was nothing more than a tool to get what he needed, human blood. So he went through these same moves night after night, and each time another person would succumb to his will, he would polish his technique. He was now a master. He had to use the precious morning moments to their fullest. He walked into the bathroom and did a quick wash in the sink. After drying himself and tossing the towel into the shower, he picked up his underwear from the floor by the desk using only his toes. He slipped them on and found the rest of his slender, black, tight-fitting outfit. He slipped his black socks over his black painted toenails. He placed his black boots by the door. Then, Casey did the only thing that made him feel guilty. He rummaged through the girl's purse to find her wallet. He pocketed the $78 she had left, picked up his Doc Martens, and quietly opened the door. Once in the hallway, he put on his boots and sunglasses and headed for the back of the hotel. The fewer people who saw him leave, the better. Casey had been on his own since he stole the beat-up Mazda that belonged to his mother's boyfriend and started driving. He was 16 then. For the last four years, he'd been traveling from city to city like a modern-day gypsy. In other words, homeless and constantly on the run. To his knowledge, there were no warrants for his arrest. He never did anything that was enough of a crime to file a report. But what would they say? This pale, red-headed kid got me drunk, seduced me, and stole the cash out of my wallet? He honestly believed that most of his lovers never actually noticed his real work, the scratches and cuts on their bodies. His desire to drink human blood had encouraged him to devise a subtle way of getting what he wanted without calling attention to himself. So he kept moving. After four or five blocks, he slowed his pace. Casey figured that if he left by noon, he could pull over at a highway rest stop, catch a quick nap in the back seat, change clothes in the restroom, and make it to Milwaukee in plenty of time to head out again later that night. Since he never really gorged himself, he was always craving blood. This meant he fed almost every night. Blood wasn't his only sustenance, however. He was ready for some breakfast. The Mazda was still seven blo several blocks away, 
So he decided to stop into a diner that he'd noticed before uh, the night before. The sign read, Peter's Diner, Steak and Eggs, $4.99. He opened the door and was surprised to find the place was full of pre-work diners. He decided to leave his sunglasses on. He sat down at the counter, the second stool from the end, and picked up a menu. The chunky, yet tactically efficient waitress put down a napkin roll of silverware and a glass of water almost immediately. Coffee? She barked pleasantly. Please. Her name tag said Shelly. It had a faded Smurfette sticker on it. It was clear, at least to Casey, that she'd been working here forever. She was a professional waitress. She knew the perfect balance between best friend and bum's rush. She was friendly enough to get a good tip, but terse enough to turn the counter three times in an hour, especially in the morning. What can I get you? She said with a smile, and she almost instantaneously returned with a steaming mug of coffee. Is the steak and eggs any good? Casey asked, trying not to sound rude. For $4.99? It's amazing. For $14.99? It's passable. She said with another smile and a wink. I'll do that. How do you want your eggs? Up, and the steak as rare as possible. Honey, I'll be honest. They were all cooked about an hour ago and have been sitting in the warmer, but I'll find you the best one I can. Another wink, and she was gone. Casey couldn't help but chuckle. Shelley's smile was contagious. He went back to reading the menu, more to hide his face than to review the cuisine. He wasn't comfortable in such a brightly lit, crowded space. He preferred being a shadow. As he waited for his breakfast, Casey heard two guys in flannel shirts and yellow construction vests, two stools over, bitch about how badly the Cubs sucked this season. Then his afternoon briefly shifted to the woman, I'm sorry, his attention briefly shifted to the woman in the wool skirt and tennis shoes behind him talking on her phone. And I better, and you better not miss the bus this morning. I'll be damned if I'm going to leave work and come home and drive you to school. I don't care if you... His attention shifted again to Shelley as she came back with his plate. Runny eggs, grayish brown meat, and a slice of buttered toast. Delicious. Here you go, hon, Shelley said with one final wink. Suddenly, Casey heard three distinct sounds almost simultaneously. A small, percussive explosion the shattering of a plate glass window, and the squealing tires of an unseen car. He looked up, as she, he looked up at Shelley, just in, just in time to see the left side of her neck rip op open and the coffee pot behind her explosively shatter. The buckshot from the drive-by had severed her carotid artery, which was now rhythmically sp spraying blood into Casey's face. Her smile slowly faded as her head awkwardly fell to her left. Eyes still open, she collapsed behind the counter. For an eternal millisecond, Casey felt the moist warmth on his forehead, cheeks, and mouth. He blinked once, his eyelashes stuck together ever so slightly. He then licked his lips and selfishly enjoyed the metallic taste he so often craved. He was jolted back to reality when one of the construction guys tackled him to the floor. Get down! Immediately, the room was filled with screams and confusion. Patrons were, were, were crying and slipping on the bloody floor. Some were trying to run away while others were afraid to move. Casey quickly came to his senses and realized he had to get out before the police showed up. 
Now, not that he had done anything wrong. He just didn't want his name on a police report. He crawled to the front door and stood up just as he reached the sidewalk. He used his coat sleeve to wipe some of the blood off of his face as he walked briskly away from the crime scene. As he made his way towards his car, his heart raced. The horror of the moment, combined with the luxurious amount of blood he had consumed, nearly short-circuited his brain. He tried desperately to slow his breathing and look as inconspicuous as possible. Casey approached his home on wheels and reached into his jacket pocket for his keys. There, he found a red-soaked piece of white toast. He must have shoved it in there in the blur of the moment. He contemplated the sticky piece of bread for a few seconds and then greedily crammed it into his mouth. Eyes closed, he smiled and thought to himself, perhaps I won't need to go out tonight. And that's Casey 20. Guys, thank you so much for having some fun with me here tonight. If you would like any of the books, either Awake in the Dark or Dreaming in Shades of Fear or my other two hardback books, um, they are all available at scottswenson.com slash books. That's all I've got for tonight. Again, never underestimate the power of a good story. And good stories mean nothing unless there are good listeners. So thank you all very much and uh, have a great night. Today's episode was produced by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Stay up to date this season with our free weekly newsletter. Sign up at hauntedattractionnetwork.com. We're counting down to Halloween with daily podcasts and our 61-day Hauntathon. Our Hauntathon is made possible through generous support from Gantam Lighting and Controls. We'll see you back here tomorrow and every day until Halloween. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.